This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, beautiful. Holy caffeine! It's the world's greatest super friends. Ronnie and Aaron. That's more than a streak of lightning. A DC Comics podcast. Absolute. Tell me something, my friend. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Yeah, sure, why not? I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Batman. He's a hipster. The Flash World's Fastest Human. I mean, I grew up with Wally West. Think about the future. If you're good at something, never do it for free. Dude, you're a dumbass. You are foolish. Ooh. DC Absolute. Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. It's just like, it doesn't make sense. Hello, everyone. Normally, we don't really do introductions on this show, but this week we have a, a special reason. So um, I'm just going to kind of start things off a little differently. Um, joining me this week, because Ronnie is unable to, uh, I figure if he can't make it, I may as well get another uh, another co-host for the week. And who better to be a co-host than uh, a writer for DC Comics himself, Brian Edward Hill, who currently is working on American Carnage. Uh, you might know him from Detective Comics um, and many other books, but he's here with us today. So, hello, Brian. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, I guess where I first came to know of your writing was probably uh, through Postal. Oh, okay. For, yeah, with, um, I guess, Top Cow and Image. Sure. Now, um, a friend of mine wanted to know uh, how awesome is Matt Hawkins? He's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you what, like Matt has been uh, a friend of mine for a very long time. So like I, uh, I always wanted to get into comics, but I didn't know how to do it. Okay. I, I went to NYU film school, uh, graduated in 99 and I uh, thought I'd be a writer director. That was the whole point. And this, this is back when, you know, indie film was kind of in a, in a golden era, you know, right. we were like, like Tarantino had gotten it kind of sparked off and nobody knew how evil Harvey Weinstein was, <laughs> you know, it was kind of like a good period. So I thought I was going to be one of those, uh, you know, kind of like grab a video camera, Steven Soderbergh types, right. Making like indie character dramas in New York. But, you know, I always loved, uh, comics and genre storytelling. And I, you know, I wrote a bunch of high concept genre scripts because you know, there's, there's a writer named John Sales. Okay. And Sales was a writer director who made these like intimate kind of character movies, but he also did rewrites on big budget action stuff too. So I kind of patterned myself after Sales. I was like, okay, I'm going to write some high concept stuff. Maybe I can sell a couple scripts, and then I can make my little weird, you know, uh, New York character dramas. And Comics were always in the back of my mind, but I never really got into it until after I'd become a screenwriter. And I met Matt Hawkins um, uh, through Nelson Blake II, because Nelson was drawing something for Matt. Uh, for I think he might have been drawing like Witchblade or okay. something. And then Nelson shared my work with Matt, and then Matt and I would talk. And so he gave me my first opportunity. It was like a short story in a Ron Mars uh, Witchblade trade which turned into some other Top Cow projects and eventually led to Postal. So I've known Matt a long time, and I really do credit Matt Hawkins with getting me started in comics, because without him, I don't know who was going to hire me. Yeah, I, I've 
been lucky enough. I've had the opportunity to talk to him at uh, New York Comic Con a few times, and he always he's very forthcoming with information, which is nice. Like he'll tell you ins and outs of the business side of stuff, and you're just like, you know, something normally you don't really expect from someone, I guess, who is you know kind of in charge of an imprint of image. Well, yeah, Matt doesn't really filter. Yeah, you know? um, and. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it's refreshing, especially in entertainment, because it's so hard to know where you stand with people in this business. Right. Um, because everyone is smiling all the time, even when they're killing you. <laughs> so you really can't read people very easily. I mean, I've, I've become better at it now than I was when I first came in there. But Matt is a guy where you know where you stand all the time. And yeah. I've really come to appreciate that. And that's why, you know, I'm working on Postal Season 2 now. Oh, and, that's uh, Excellent. I've got some, um, yeah, Rafael Ayanko is going to do the art for that. I think Isaac has, uh, he's doing a, um, a Catwoman uh, kind of young adult graphic novel now. So, okay. But Rafael's work is, is great. Uh, and that is, you know, kind of on the way. So I, I always will be doing something with Top Cow as long as yeah. Top Cow is interested in publishing my work. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, when, when you started off with Postal, I know, mm. uh, I believe you and Matt were writing the issues together before you took over, like, uh, about 11, 12 issues in? Yeah, that's correct. So, so, so how does have... that exactly work when you have two people writing the book? Is it, you know, I know, like, with um, some of the big event stuff DC did, like Batman Eternal, whatever, there were five or six people writing, but each of them kind of did, they focused on, like, one storyline. But Postal well, was more of a focus thing. Yeah, well, you know, Matt and I, by that time, we'd known each other about four or five years. Oh, and we'd okay. just get together and have, like, a beer and, and just kind of, you know, uh, just talk and just about life and whatever. Mm. So he had this idea for Postal. You know, he kind of gave me, like, a paragraph or so of that world and those characters. And he's like, hey, Ryan, do you see, you know, like, a series in this? And um, I'm really a fan of Southern Midwestern crime fiction. Okay. Uh, you know, like Truman Capote, like In Cold Blood, like stuff like that. Like that's kind of my wheelhouse. Like, I'm very much a true detective, Nick Pizzolatto kind of guy. Okay. Um, so I was like, well, let me let me bank on it, you know, and, and let me see um, what I can come up with. So I sent him like a couple pages of what I saw uh, we could do, you know, as an ongoing. And then he saw that and responded to it. And then, yeah, I mean, it would really be I would send in a, a draft of a script and then he would uh, do some rewriting to it. And, you know, and, and then we'd kind of come together on it. Um, just to make sure that you know it had like his initial vision was in there because he really saw how, kind of how these characters would be the uh, the Asperger's aspect of Mark was very important to him. Right. Um, and then you know after you know I kind of knew because when you work with someone for a bit you sort of know what they're going to say, okay. right? Yeah. So you can say it in your own head while you're writing. Uh, and then when it looked like there was a bit of a um, you know, kind of a physics to it that we were both in, like the gravitational pull of knowing what to do was present. He was just like, why don't you just go ahead and do it? <laughs> uh, and then um, I, that's when I took over the book solo. But yeah, you know, collaboration is different, you know, in every situation. When you know someone really well, it's a lot easier because there's already a shorthand in place. And because Matt's a friend of mine, yeah, that's a pretty it... easy process. Right. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely, you can see how, I mean, with, trying to think with with postal you know the character of mark how he um it it must have been interesting to get into his head to write him you know to yeah, make sure well, that it wasn't like a caricature of, right. of whatever 
Well, that was really a focus of mine. Like, I didn't want to write Mark like he was a a character in a USA Blue Sky show. Right. You know, like, <laughs> he wasn't going to be a guy that, like, walked into a room and then, like, smelled somebody's fart and told you who killed somebody. Um, that, you know, like, that didn't seem to be uh, the way to go. The, the, the great thing uh, about now is we live in a culture where people share things, personal things, all the time on social media, on YouTube, what have you. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was I looked up YouTubes uh, of people who had been diagnosed on the Asperger spectrum and watched them just talk about their experiences. And then I reached out to a few of them and said, like, hey, can I just kind of wrap with you for a little bit? I'm working on a comic book. I want to make sure I get things right. Um, would you mind me asking a few questions? And everyone was like, yeah, sure. You know, No one ever really reached out to me about things like that. Uh, so I would have a bunch of these conversations and I would take some notes and uh, do it over Skype. So while I was taking notes on what they were saying, I was also paying attention to their behavior. Okay. A lot of a lot of writing is being a student of the world and uh, absorbing things actively. Mm-hmm. So with characterization, uh, I do a little bit of research and I try to pick up on everything. You know, like for like American Carnage, the DC Vertigo book I'm writing now. You know, I met with like white supremacists. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask about that. I saw. Uh, some other interview where you said that you were on uh, like message boards and things like that, just talking to people. Yeah, you know, was, mean, it's, it's it started off with the message boards. I had like a pseudonym, and I was like Thor Hammer something or other. I don't remember <laughs> what it was. Right, um, and that wasn't particularly helpful because you know message boards are people at their most hyperbolic. Yeah, and you know you don't need to do research for hyperbole. Hyperbole is pretty easy. What I needed to do was figure out the uh, emotional quantity of people who had uh, beliefs that are monstrous and and engaging them without judging them. So I did a few in-person meetings with people. You know, I I reached out to – I have some friends in law enforcement. I have some friends at the ACLU, and so they would introduce me to people that um, had been in the movement and had left. And I started there, and then I asked those people, hey, hey, do you know anyone who – is still in there who'd be willing to talk to me. I'm not going to set anybody up. You know, this isn't about bringing a tape recorder and making somebody look bad. Um, right. As long as they're not going to hit me with a baseball bat, I'm fine to sit down and talk to somebody. Yeah. Uh, and I did a couple of those meetings in Missouri where I'm from. I did a couple of them in California where I am now. Um, and, and that's really a process of just kind of learning people, you know, and when does someone look you in the eye and when do they not? Right. You know, when does someone's body language change? What are the words they use a lot? Um, and you could you could see like you'd have people that would occasionally speak in sound bites, and then you wonder like where do they get that sound bite from? Yeah, because that doesn't feel organic to their thought process. That feels learned and regurgitated. And yeah, so I I'm not a journalist, but I I guess I do take the posture of one when I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly because, you know, I get bored with myself, you know, I get bored with just what I can invent in my head. I think I'm a better storyteller when I'm repurposing things that I've experienced. Okay. Um, it just makes the work more authentic, even if nothing specifically, you know, the thing about research is it's not really a matter of this specific thing is going to make it into the specific moment. It just gives you this fluency that you need to be able to create, you right. know, like, um, I don't, I, guns aren't a big thing for me. I'm not a big gun guy, but 
uh, for a couple of projects. I've gone to a gun range. I've gotten some small arms instruction and just gotten used to the idea of having a weapon in my hands and using it. You know, for like Michael Cray, that was important because yeah. he is an assassin. He has a very specific relationship to weapons. Um, and it's, it's never a matter of, well, here's a panel where I show you all my research. So now he's going to talk about 5.56 rounds and hammer bite. And, no, no. It's more like, okay, I get the feeling of this so I can translate that feeling into the work. Right. And, I mean, it definitely, it, it definitely comes through, I mean, both in Michael Cray and in American Carnage, where... I mean, you've done like in American Carnage, especially. You've managed to take such a, a polarizing topic, and you can take people like um, I just read uh, Billy. You know, oh, kind of yeah, like yeah. The, the gang guy. You know, you can take someone like him, and as horrible a person as he is, you can still kind of say, okay, you know, he was overseas in Iraq. He came back. You know, he's a little off, you know, he's got some PTSD, so he's got these issues. But you manage to, like, you can, you take the whole image of the person and for, like, you try and make them sympathetic in a way, and it feels that way. But at the same time, you're just like, you know what, he's also still a white supremacist, so I'm not supposed to like him. But at least it, again, you know, just like with with Postal it feels like you're writing people, not characters. And it, well, it really yeah, people are complicated and yeah. you know, no one is born a monster. Well, some people are, I mean, I guess there's a certain percentage of people that are sociopaths and they have right. no empathy and all that, like the Ted Bundy's of the world. <laughs> but, uh, most people are, they're shaped by the choices they've made. They're shaped by experience. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you're writing characters, whether you're talking about a white supremacist or, or Dr. Doom, um, you, you can't really afford to judge a character, right? You sort of right. present the character, their perspective, uh, be as honest as you can, and then let the reader figure out how they feel about mm. everything. And, you know, I, I think, you know, if you look at the marketing around American Carnage, you look at like the, the first cover, you know, you got burning crosses and, and, and men and, 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 you know, hats and, and right. the rest of it. Um, it's easy to say like, oh, okay, I know what this is going to be. This is going to be, you know, them wasists are bad, the book. And I, I told the editors, Andy Corey and Mark Doyle, that I'm not interested in a book that's only about that. Because frankly, if you don't think racism is bad, I'm not sure my book is going to change your mind. <laughs> Uh, what I am interested in is like a pot boiler crime story set in LA using elements we don't normally see. Uh, and that's, that's how I, I look at the book. You know, it's not, I, it's not a book where I, I, I'm trying to change someone's mind. It's just, you know, I think this is an interesting way to frame a crime story and the title American carnage, obviously there's a little nod to, uh, uh, the president in that because he used the phrase, but you know, the book is really about all of the dark vicissitudes of American crime culture. And right. uh, it goes, it starts in a place and goes to many other places. And I don't think it's a book where you're going to find a paladin. Mm. You know, no one in there is a white knight hero. Um, everyone in there is flawed in some way. And that feels very real to me, you know, and, and whether, whether it's the narcissistic sociopathy of, of Wynn Morgan uh, or the enigmatic worldview of his daughter Jennifer or mm. Rick's 
need for redemption and his quest to understand who he is or Sheila's uh, righteousness that's justifying a lot of things that are crimes, really, when you look at it. You know, it's a story about the the mess of of things, and um, uh, there's freedom in that. You know, it, it can be very constricting to pass judgment on a world and say, well, this will be this and this will be that, because they, there's not many moves you can make. Right. You know, um, and for for reading material, I think it's interesting to do something that doesn't uh, just come down in one-dimensional terms. Well, was was there one specific instance or or something that gave you the idea of like specifically for this story like did something set that off in your head or is it just kind of well, growing so it, a, a couple of everything things. i mean there was like the dylan roof thing you mm-hmm. know um because that just seemed like a, a crime from a different era right like a, you right. know i'd heard stories from my grandmother and stories from my mother about that sort of thing but you didn't think that people in a house of worship were going to get gunned down by somebody just because they were a different race, right? right. Like that, it's crazy. And then I'd also known someone who I was good friends with as a kid in St. Louis, and I'd lost touch with them. And then when I came back there, I was visiting like during uh, like a summer or something. It was a few number of years ago, and they had become uh, an extremist in, in this movement. You know, lightning bolts and eighty eights and everything else. Huh. Uh, and that was the instance where I had known the person. It's kind of like if you knew Anakin Skywalker when he was 13 and then you bumped into Darth Vader, you're like, well, what happened to you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, whoa, whoa. We were, we were just beating Sebulba in pod racing and then you took a turn, bro. Um, and yeah, and so I'm, I'm always interested in how people become things. Right. You know, when I was a kid and I'd watch movies, it was always the origin story that was my favorite story. You know, it's... Um, uh, I'm always just fascinated by, you know, how people decide what they want to be and, and how they shape themselves and, right. and all of that, the deconstruction of people's, uh, archetypal value, their iconography, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was all those things. And when Vertigo reached out and they said, Hey, we got the 25th anniversary relaunch we're doing, you know, would you be interested in writing one of those books? I mean, of course I would be in Vertigo, but I told them, I don't really have a magical realism project I'm working on at the moment. You know, and that was what, yeah. you know, what I figured, right? Like, you know, I heard Sandman was coming back, and I'm like, yeah, I, I love magical realism, but I don't have it right now. And they're like, no, it can be anything, you know, they want. So I told them, well, for me, most of my Vertigo reading was the crime stuff, 100 Bullets, Preacher, Scalped, that kind of right. thing. Um, I'm like, well, I got this story, and I don't really know what it is. Um, you know, I didn't know if it was going to be like a screenplay, a television, you know, I don't know what I was going to do with it, but I, I got a story and I figured they would just tell me no, right? Like there's no way they're going to want to publish this because yeah. the, the last thing they want to do is be, you know, the speaking point on Sean Hannity or something, you know, like that's not what yeah, that's you want a- for your relaunch, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought I'd turn it in and get my no. And then I turned it in, and, and uh, Jamie Rich and Mark and, and, and Andy over there were like, no, this is cool. We want to do something like this. And they, you know, and they kind of asked me some ideas and let me probe it a little bit more, and I did, and gave them a, a, a more detailed kind of outline, a little more red meat on the bone. Um, and then yeah, they're like, yeah. You know, then when Leandro wanted to do it, and I'd seen his work before, um, you know, I thought that was a great match because the, the book is so stark mm-hmm. in its presentation 
that uh, uh, I felt like if it was too grounded in the art, you know, if it was just verisimilitude the entire time, that just might be too much for people. Okay. It needed to be a little stylized so you could take the edge off of some of it. Um, and when I was writing it, I had like, you know, like Mitch Gerads as kind of art in my head when I was writing it, you know, because yeah. I didn't know who the artist was going to be. But when Leandro was like, yeah, I'll do it, I saw some of his sketches for some of the characters, like, no, no, this should be one of this. So does, because, does he reach out to you or does someone at Vertigo kind of put you two together? Well, they, you know, they asked me, um, did I have any artists in mind? And okay. I didn't because I, uh, I didn't have a library of artists in my head. You never know who's available. You don't want to look like, you know, a neophyte by, by naming someone that everybody yeah. knows, you know, like, so I, I trust my editors. Uh, my editors are really partners in my process. So I was like, why don't you tell me who you're thinking? And then, you know, they brought Leandro and sent me, sent me his work and I went seen some of his work, Punisher and other things. And so I'm like, yeah, this guy's really good. Let's see if he's in- interested. And then he was, and I saw some of his work and I'm like, this is great. Um, yeah. So I, I tend to trust my editors in a lot of stuff. You know, okay. my, my job is to make the script as good as I can, get their thoughts, their notes, uh, you know, implement those notes. And then, you know, they've been doing the game a long time. They've been pairing creators a long time. So right. uh, they know kind of based on how you write your technique, who you know, would work well with you, not just in terms of the, the visualization of the storytelling, but also personality types. too. Mm. Yeah, because um, I, I mean, the art for this book, it fits so well. I mean, his style, it's the thing I really love about his style is two specific things he does a lot of. There's a lot of like the the shadow play Mm -hmm. where, you know, you don't need everything right in the forefront, right in your face all the time. Right. And it's so great, especially with some of the subject matter that, you know, some of the things are kind of back in the shadows. So, you know, as you will, but also the, the way he'll, he'll draw like facial expression and everything. Like, I mean, it could be complete wordless panels that still tell a full story of all the emotion, like everything that the people are thinking and feeling and everything that's going on. And it really complements the right, like the, the writing and the story in this so well. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, Leo's got a great imagination for this stuff and mm-hmm. he's a, he's a storyteller. You know, yeah. some people, they draw well, and then other people, they interpret a script and they tell a story. And yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, Leo is directing, you mm. know, the book. You know, I'm the, I'm the screenwriter and he's kind of executing like that. But he's doing the acting. He's doing the performances. And this is a book where subtlety matters. You know, I, you know, uh, I'm obviously influenced by Tom's work and Tom King and, right. and the nine-panel pa- grid of it all. And, <laughs> you know, the, the, the little bits of distance you can cover between panels. Mm-hmm. Um and Leo's great about being able to do uh, those things. And, you know, we spoke at the beginning of the process about our influences. And Michael Mann was probably the first name that came out of my mouth. Okay. Um, because his cinematic worlds are mythic, but they're also very real, right? Like, he has a, a very specific way he visualizes Los Angeles. Right, and and we're all familiar with the city, but he he can find the myth in the city. Like Collateral, sort of takes place on planet Los Angeles, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like Heat 
takes place on planet Los Angeles. And we talked a lot about how to get iconic images out of familiar things, familiar moments, like someone standing in the hallway on a cell phone. How do we make that say something? And, and Leo's great. You know, he likes to think about those things. And those are the artists that I, I think I work the best with mm-hmm. um, are artists that do like to interpret a script and, and think through it and, you know, challenge you on some things. And, you know, it's, uh, that's, I guess that's the NYU, like indie filmmaker part of me, right. you know, like there's the Hollywood way where you work with an actor and you're like dictating down to the actors, you know, stand mm-hmm. the X, look over here, say the line, look pretty. Okay. Cut. Let's do it one more time for safety. And then there's that organic kind of New York indie thing where you're just like, we're going to let the camera run. You guys know the dialogue and see what happens. Go where you want. You know, walk where you want. We'll yeah. follow you, right? And that's more of my, my, uh, my kind of creative style. Um, and, uh, you know, Isaac and, and Isaac Goodhart and myself on Postal was the same thing. Mm. Like, you know, here's a script. My scripts are very lean. I don't do a lot of visual indication. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's another thing I was going to ask. Is there, you know, if there were times when, like, you have this specific image in your head that you say, you know, we, I think this for this panel or this page, and then, you know, Leandro or I guess Isaac or, or someone else comes back and says, you know, I like it, but what about this? Because I think it would fit the overall picture better. Yeah, like, most of the time, I don't. You know, I'll, if there are things that need to be indicated because just clarity for the reader, I'll certainly say it. Right. Most of the time, I just talk about how this page or this sequence should feel. Right. right? Um, you know, like if the destination is Athens, mm-hmm. I'll say, hey, I want to get to Athens. But I won't tell you what road to take to get there. Right. Because an artist is going to have their own methodology. Right. They got their own mythos that they'll use to get to that place. You know, same thing like working with an actor. You know, if you're working with, you know, uh, you know Robert De Niro on something, mm-hmm. you know, you it's uh, there's something they tell you never to do uh, in directing. It's called result based directing, and and that's when you're directing an actor and it's a sad scene and you want to see tears, right? Right. So the director's like, okay, and then at the end of the scene, you're going to cry, and so the actor is like, all right. <laughs> and then they you know, they whip up some crocodile tears for you, and there you go. But that's bad directing. You don't want to do that. You don't want to direct a result way. You want to say, okay, you know, here's the feeling of the scene. Here's the motivation of the character. Yeah. Um, here are where I think the 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 turns are for the character. Um, you know, do whatever feels natural in the moment. And sometimes an actor might cry, and sometimes an actor won't cry. But as long as the grief and the tragedy and the sadness is there. Then, uh, yeah. that's what gets communicated. Same thing with an artist. Like, you know, I just turned in a script for, uh, uh, uh a Marvel thing. I can't really talk about now, but it, it'll be announced soon. I, I think. Okay. Um, and I'm working with a pretty legendary artist on that, on that deal. Um, and there's a couple fight scenes in there. So instead of like paneling them out and, and doing that, I, I just put a paragraph at the top of the page. Like, okay, this is what uh, has to happen narratively in this fight. Mm hmm. This is how it, that fight's supposed to feel. Here's some, you know, some moments I see in my head, but panel it out the way you want to panel it out. Yeah. You know, use that page space the way you want to use it. Um, I'm not dictatorial uh, in that way. Mm. Um, speaking of, I guess, script writing, you've, you've yeah. done a couple episodes of Titans. Yeah. Um, how do you, 
feel I, um, do you feel differently writing for the TV than you do writing the comic book? I mean, it's still it's scripts, but I mean, it's a different. I mean, obviously, there are things that you can do in a comic book you can't necessarily do on television. Well, you know, the format has its own requirements, right? right? Like, you know, it's like Russian nesting dolls. So a novel gives you the most space to do whatever you want. Right. And then a screenplay gives you far less space because you have to get through three acts or five acts if you're using Elizabethan structure, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in about 120 pages, right? Uh, then a TV script gives you even less space because you're talking about, you know, a, a script in between 50, 60 pages, right? Um, and then a comic book is 20, 22 pages. That still has to be a complete experience and lead to the next thing. And so it, it's like a, a, a rising game of efficiency um, mm. kind of through those formats. But in addition to that, TV is a collaborative art form. Right. You know, my, my job as a television writer is to uphold the vision of the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I'm there. You know, it, it's not to, uh, it's to share things, perspective, you know, different methods, that kind of thing where it's helpful, but ultimately I'm there to, to run the play that the head coach calls, right? Yeah. Like that's You're on the field and they, they want to throw, you've got to throw, right? My job is to find the receiver, not think about, you know, why I'd run instead of throwing or any of that. Um, so that, that's, I think the, the most different part of it is it's it's built for that kind of uh sort of hierarchy in mm-hmm. in comics i am kind of the showrunner right you know so i make a lot of narrative well really all the narrative decisions the broad ones i kind of make you know you get input from your editors and and i talk to you know i talk to leo about things like on carnage or i talk to isaac about, about things in postal but ultimately you ha- you're the showrunner you're you know it's more like a madman situation where you're matthew weiner and you're writing every episode Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's that's the the biggest difference. So I like the collaborative aspect of television because one, it's kind of nice not to be ultimately <laughs> fully responsible for, for you know, everything. Like, yeah. Right. Like yep. you know, it's, it's, there's a little freedom in that. Like you know, you can just kind of execute a thing and not have to always have the the macro view along with the micro you know cleats on the field view, which I like. Right. Um, and then you're also writing for people which is a bit of a different deal mm-hmm. uh, because that's another level of interpretation. You know, like if you write for comics, the drawings are the people so you can manipulate them. I mean, you have to manipulate the drawings so, to transform them into what you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're writing a script for human beings, human beings need to have the space to interpret things the way they want. So you write a little differently. You know, you might not write as specifically in terms of, you know, this line will feel like this and all, all that stuff. Like instead you're sort of setting the stage for the scene to get executed. Um, because human beings, you know, they everyone brings something different to it. Like Brenton brings very original things to Dick Grayson and you want to capture those things and give him space to do that. Right. So yeah, you know, there, I'm grateful to have the ability to work in these different formats because each of them allows me to experiment with different things and different techniques. Mm. So, so I never get bored, you know? Uh, and, and then because I write comics and scripts and other things and, um, as well, I'm not precious in the writer's room. Right. You know, I'm not, it's not the only thing that I'm writing, you know, it's not the only way that my voice will be heard. And so it's easier for me to, you know, break the whole thing down that I wrote and build it back up in a different way because I don't have a lot of ego in the 
process. Mm. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm. Are we going to be seeing more episodes of yours in season two or? Well, yeah, I imagine so. Oh. Um, you know, we're early. Yeah, I, I don't know how far along that. in the process things are. I mean, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I certainly hope. Yeah, I mean, I think so, for sure. Excellent. Uh, um, yeah, we got a great crew of writers uh, this time around, and our showrunner, Greg Walker, is fantastic. Yeah, I've learned so much from him yeah. um, from season one. He's just like, you know, it's a really, really great guy. Uh, and then Jeff is, uh, Jeff Johns, you know, mm-hmm. is is very much involved in our process, and so is Akiva Goldsman. So, you know, in that kind of scenario, you walk into work every day knowing how unnecessary you are. Yeah, right. You know, it, it, which is cool. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like being on, like, the 90s-era Bulls, and you're like Horace Grant or yeah. something. Like, <laughs> yep. you know, like, yeah, yeah, but, like, they don't need you, really. <laughs> yeah. But between Mike and Scotty, they kind of got it, <laughs> so... You know, you could just be like, "Yeah, it's cool. Let's let's just play some basketball." Um, so yeah, so I imagine you'll see me, uh, um, you know, on on at least one of those episodes uh, as it goes along. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been I've been very pleasantly surprised with the show. That okay. I mean, I I've grown up a huge Teen Titans fan. Yeah. And when it was announced, I was super excited. And then you know, they kind of some of the imagery. And the first stuff, and you hear, like, it's going to be a grittier, like, a darker take. And I was like, huh, that'll be interesting. But, man, the show is absolutely spectacular. I've, I've well, enjoyed it. You well, know, if you if you go back to, like, the, the Wolfman Perez stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, it's pretty stark, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, and and that was one of Jeff's, uh, you know, you know, kind of focus points was mm-hmm. if you look at the, you know, the the foundation of this stuff it was challenging work right um and as a show about younger characters kind of finding their way i mean it's different like if you were doing a show about you know a veteran character then it would have like you know you'd have like a different perspective on things but right you know young people are intense and they make mistakes and they're still figuring themselves out yep um and uh i think to capture that you know you, you do want to harness some of the truth of that experience um and and see what we can do with it. Uh, so it's been a it's been a fun ride so far. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, with with seeing how you know kids make mistakes and everything. I mean, you have Dick is kind of the you know veteran presence, but he has you know Gar's brand new, Raven is brand new. You know, sure, even sure. even you you know your new Robin is still ultra violent and you know out yeah, there. Yeah, and it's I mean. You know, I mean, obviously you have more insider knowledge than I do, but it's going to be very interesting to see how everything, you know, builds from there to where it's going to go because it's, you know, as the team is coming together, it's been great to watch. Well, one of the things about Greg, Greg Walker, that I admire the most is he's first and foremost dedicated to the human truth of everything. Mm. You know, he, he wants things to feel real. He wants to get to the emotion. Um, and that's been helpful for me because I am a person that can fall in love with aesthetics, right? right. I can fall in love with style. I can fall in love with, you know, kineticism, um, and be totally satisfied with that. Right. It's like going back to the Michael Mann of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the other side of Michael Mann where, you know, you might get something like black hat, which is a beautifully shot movie, 
but might be distant from some of the emotion for people, right? Or right. the Miami Vice 2006 film, which I like a lot, but a lot of people didn't respond to. And I get why, because it's kind of a cold, removed uh, experience that can seem to be more style than substance. So the great thing about Greg is Greg, while he empowers you know, your stylistic instincts, he's always making sure you're anchoring it to real human emotion. And those are the two wings of the airplane. You know, that's right. That's why something gets off the ground. Um, because left to my own devices, I might make something really shallow and completely <laughs> vapid, but you know, it looks like a billboard the entire time. So there's that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I've learned, you know, a, a little bit about what a showrunner has to do, um, in terms of harnessing the best out of the crew. Right. Like that's, that's what you want out of yeah. a coach is someone who recognizes everyone's style of play, you know, kind of knows who to get the ball to when. Right. And um, how, how to get people to get to that point where right. they're able to do their best. And, and create an environment where you feel comfortable to share things. I mean, I've right. heard about TV rooms that are contentious and there's ambition and jealousy and, you know, showrunners have everyone walking on eggshells the entire time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and Greg is the opposite of that. Greg creates what I believe is, uh, the best environment, which is an environment where people feel safe. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, again, going back to the directing thing, you know, like, you know, if an actor doesn't feel safe, they're not going to give you a good performance mm -hmm. or they're going to give you the safest performance. Right. Right. Which might be just like their charisma in a bottle, you know, mm -hmm. but if you want to get the the real stuff, the spontaneous stuff, the unique stuff. People have to feel comfortable with making a mistake, yeah. with with saying something that might not be a great idea for the scene, but maybe there's something in the idea that you didn't see. Hmm. You know that someone else in the room is like, okay, well, I don't know about that specific plot idea, but in that is this really interesting thing. It's almost like listening to like a. Like I, I, I play music and produce a little music as a hobby. And sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, you'll be working on a track or I'll hear someone else's song that someone will send me and they're having trouble with it. And I'll be like, okay, the thing is you have a great song in here. We just have to get this not great song out of it. Right. And they won't, and they don't hear it at first, but then you isolate what you hear. They hear it and they're like, Oh, and you're like, yeah, build the whole song around that part. You know? Mm. Um, and he's good about doing that, but you don't get to those moments, you know, if people are constantly worried about getting yelled at or berated or yeah. any of that. And Greg, um, to his to his great credit, uh, maintains an environment where you feel um, safe to express yourself and uh, uh, and share, you know. And I think you need that to harness the best out of people. Right. Um now, I guess since I have you here, I guess mm. it, would, it would be uh, – I guess I have to ask if there's any updates on Batman and the Outsiders. Oh, um, sure. Uh, it's still happening. Okay. That's uh, excellent in, news. In fact, I had a, a, a lengthy conversation today with DC about it. Oh. Doing the, the book – there's nothing wrong with the book. No, it, I um, guess what it sounded like – from the outside was that certain things in the DC universe had to happen before the book, the story could be told Correct. to its best. Correct. When I, <laughs> when I started working on the book, uh, certain elements, certain characters that I had, mm -hmm. uh, in the story weren't in play in other places. 
Okay. And now those characters are in play and choices are being made. So I, I have to retool all of that so that my book uh, can fit in with the wider DCU, which is always uh, an issue when you're doing a, a, a number one that's so core. Like, right. you know, it's it's if I was doing like a 12-issue series about Roy Harper, for instance, well, you know, you can kind of do what you want, right? Because right. it is what it is. But anytime you have Batman yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in your book, right? Um, and all that that it, that entails, and you know Cassandra Kane and Katana, you mm-hmm. know Duke Thomas and Jefferson Pierce, there there's something to consider. You know, it has to uh, be harmonious with everything else, and um, there's a way that everything was lining up, and then certain choices are made on other books because I'm starting at one. Yeah. It's much easier for me to change what I was going to do than for someone to change what they were going to do when they're into like the tens or the twenties or the forties or the fifties and so on. Right. You know? um, so that was really just a kind of a, uh, a, a call made to like, well, let's pull it back, retool it, make sure it's in sync with everything and get it back out there. And ultimately I'm kind of glad because one, it's going to be better than what I was going to do before. So readers <laughs> okay. are getting the better version, right? I think right. they're getting a better outside experience Two. Uh, I was just talking to DC about this. If it had, if it had released when it was going to release, mm-hmm. then there would have been a lot of Brian Hill on the shelf. You know, between American Carnage, right. Killmonger, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I forgot some other stuff I was doing. Like, and and retailers, and I'm very cognizant of the situation retailers are in. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to look at uh, a bunch of work and decide like, oh, how many Brian Hill books am I going to put on the shelf this month? Right. Yeah. And I, I would have hated for outsiders to cannibalize some of the retailers that are trying out American Carnage, for mm-hmm. instance, um, or Killmonger. You know, I, there's a there's a tendency in comics, not tendency, but there's a risk in comics to overexpose yourself. Yeah. Because once you're a writer and you know you've written some things that people think are are decent, and you're dependable, you're easy to work with. People like working with you. You know, and they want to keep working with you, and it's all good. But then you can wind up in a month, you have five books out, right? And uh, then you can start to cannibalize your own readership and, and your own interest. So now I'm paring down the comic book work that I'm doing in 2019 um, so I can really focus on making things as good as they possibly can be. Right. Uh, and so Outsiders, you know, gets to kind of stand, you know, apart in that and get its own little spotlight, which is, which is good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say that because there are some authors that still have, I mean, seemingly 10, 12 books every month that come out. And it's like, one, I don't know how anyone has the time to do that. And two, like you were saying, like, d- does something, if someone's going to make a choice and say, okay, I'm going to, my budget is 15 comic books a month. I like this writer, but I also want to. Right, get some of these other characters and stories and something else. So it, it's I always call it like the you know it's a twenty dollar problem, right? Yeah. Like most people go into a comic book store willing to spend about twenty bucks. Right, they'll spend more than that sometimes, but twenty bucks is about what they're willing to spend. So ten dollars of that is going automatically to their favorite characters, no matter who's writing. Yep, you're a Superman guy, the Spider Man guy. Well, that's ten bucks right there. Yeah, um, and then you got this other ten dollars kind of hanging out. 
and everyone's competing for the other ten dollars unless you're working on one of those major major characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know you have to be kind of cognizant of that and, and readers and their choices. Hey, look, if I was Tom King or Scott Snyder or Kelly Sue DeConnick or someone, where I'd been a centerpiece writer in comics for ten years or something, mm-hmm. then yeah, you know I could have uh, a shotgun blast of books coming out every month for six months. Right. I love my readers, and uh, I think I have some like the best readers in comics because they're super, you know, invested, and they, you know, were, were friendly. They always, you know, they, they tweeted me. I tweet back to them. I love the little community I have around my work. Mm-hmm. But I'm also aware of the fact that I'm not Scott yet. You know, I'm not right. I'm, I'm not a person that's like, yeah, yeah, you know, let, let, me, let me just get the whole 20. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, so... So yeah, you sort of pace things out, and and it's only number one, you know, and you want it to be really good and unique, you know. It's um, the first thing I said when DC asked me if I wanted to do it was yes, but it can't just feel like another Batman book on the shelf, right? It has to have its own unique value, you know. It it has to have its own um, its own kind of risk. No. Or it's I don't know if it's worth the price of admission, and DC has been extremely supportive of that. Did did they have the idea, or you have the idea for the Outsiders book before you did the run in Detective, which kind of set the whole thing up? Or oh well, you know that's funny, man. I was in Canada producing my episode, uh, my because I worked on two, they shot back to back. Okay, so I was in Canada for about six weeks straight, um, and. I was up there working on that and got an email from Chris uh, Conroy, who I knew. Um, God, I met Chris. I don't know. It was kind of coming and going. We just had conversations. And he asked me, you know, would I be interested in writing a five issue arc of Detective? Okay. And I was like, you mean like Detective Comics, Detective Comics? Like <laughs> yeah. Batman? You know, because Batman is like Hamlet. Yeah. Every actor wants to play Hamlet, right? Right. So every writer has a Batman story in their back pocket. Um, and you, I, I just think it's it's a fool's errand to have that ambition, right? That's like having the ambition of winning an Oscar. I mean, I guess it's good to have a goal, but don't lose sleep over it because, right. you know, most people don't get one and they yeah. have illustrious careers, right? So I never carried this dream in my heart of writing Batman, um, even though I love the character. So when he asked me to do it, I was like, okay, yeah. And then it's like, well, you know what, you know, they, they, they wanted me to engage Black Lightning. So I think I had talked to them a little bit about Jefferson Pierce. Just, mm-hmm. well, a lot of what I'll do is I'll just be talking to an editor. I'm not pitching anything. I'm just talking about like how I see a character and what I do with the character, just having a right. fun conversation. Um, and I think they'd heard me talk about what I do with Jefferson and thought that I could uh, kind of bring a contemporary cool to the character. You know, okay. like um, put a little... Uh, uh, you know, put a little Jamie Foxx or young Denzel in his game. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were they were interested in that. So, you know, when, when I looked at the roster of detectives, you know, your mind is like, okay, yeah, there's some outsiders going on. But that wasn't really a conversation we had. Okay, It, it was, you know, I think it started kind of in the middle of the run being released. And people were, were reading it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think DC maybe felt a little bit more comfortable with the idea of me writing Batman in a longer term way. Hmm. Um, Cause you know, it's Batman, right? I mean, it's like, you know, arguably the most important character they have, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it might be Aquaman now, who knows, right? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Very true. <laughs> but you know, but you know, Batman's still like Batman. Yeah. And um, I think they, when they saw like how 
uh, I had a, a facility to, you know, to to express the the character. Then it kind of came to mind for them, and they and they spoke with me about it. But you know, at first, I you know, I I focus on the opponent in front of me, right? And right, you know, that that thing was I had five visions of detective. I was coming off of Tiny's run, and and he's a you know a master at the craft. Uh, I knew that James Robinson was going to show up after me, who's you know really really good. And then after that it was Pete Tomasi. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, I can't be garbage in, <laughs> yeah, in the middle. Of, like, right. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I just can't, you know, it's like you're, it's like you're at Coachella and it's like, you know, a <laughs> uh, Halsey childish Gambino me and like ASAP Rocky. And you're like, right. well, I gotta have a damn good set. Cause I'm not going to be the garbage man in that crew. Yeah. Um, you don't want to be the bathroom break. I don't want to be the bathroom break, you know? I don't want to be the bathroom break. I want people to hang out and, and still dance when I'm on stage. So yeah. that was mainly my focus. Um, and uh, it was later when the books got released that they, uh, they you know, broached the subject with me. Yeah, because when, I mean, as we were reading it, the first issue were like, this has an outsider's feel. And then the second issue were like, this definitely has an outsider's feel. And then as, you know, when they made the announcement, we were like, oh, good, because, you know, we're very excited that it's continuing in some form because I enjoyed the story and I'm, oh, well, thank I'm, you. I, I'm I, curious I, I to see. You. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, I'm curious to see how, you know, you have like veteran outsiders kind of with black lightning and Katana mm-hmm. with like rookies sort of with orphan and the signal to see how, you know, along with Batman, you know, with everything, how there's mentorship and, you know, kind of bringing, you know, I guess uh, sort of like with Titans, how the the older people are bringing the younger people along, you know, to, well, to yeah. fit I mean, into that world. That's the thing that we're going to explore in even um, greater detail, you know, uh, in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, a detective comics book is a comic. It's a comic book that largely comes from Bruce's point of view. Right. You know, it's a Bruce POV book. Uh, Outsiders is kind of a balanced POV book mm-hmm. in a different in a different way, and it allows me to get into the marrow of some of those issues. And I'm in an interesting time in my life um, because I am old enough to not repeat the mistakes of my youth, which are many. <laughs> um, but I'm young enough that those memories aren't far. Right, right. I can still get it, you know, and and I assume there's at some point in your life when you grow up. And you turn on the radio, and you don't get it anymore. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like you just I don't get it, you know. Um, but I still get it, and uh, that allows me to write from both Jefferson's perspective and Duke and Cassandra's perspective, you know, right. and Bruce's perspective. And you know, it's a unique time in a creator's life. I mean, maybe if you're like Rick Rubin or something, and you're like you know, sixty years old producing Jay Z songs, you get it for the rest of your life. Right. But. You know, sometimes you just age out of certain feelings, you know, and um, I still remember what it was like to be young and want to break stuff, mm. you know, but now I'm old enough to know how to put things back together. So uh, I get to engage both those sides of my experience uh, with the book and uh, I can make it a, it's a superhero book first and foremost, big right. action, one style, it's Dexter's soy is doing the art and he's fantastic. Everything he draws, you just want to put in your wall. Yeah, when um, when he stop doing uh red hood and the outlaws i was kind of upset because that book i mean oh, one his, writing his it's amazing slaps. and two the art is so good yeah and i was like slaps, oh, i just man. i need more of his stuff out totally. and when he you got know, announced for i was like oh yeah 
this and, is. And that's like shooting, you know, Kate Moss in an editorial or something. Like it's right. just it's gonna look good. Oh, you yeah. know, <laughs> like you like you can have you know your iPhone and it's gonna look good. Yeah. So so yeah. So like you know, I get to to engage all that stuff and and have the power of Dexter's work. So even though it's a superhero DCU uh, experience, it's also still equally as personal as something like American Carnage. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I guess the last question I really have for you, um, you did the, um, the Spider-Man annual. Yeah. And, and you're writing Batman. (laughs) So, so you're writing basically two of, or you have written two of the biggest comic book characters there are. I guess that's true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've never actually sat down and considered that, but I, I suppose that's true. Yeah. I I was going to ask which one felt like when, when you were told detective or when you were told Spider-Man, which one kind of felt like, wow. Like, was there one more than the other? Not necessarily one more than the other. mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, to be honest, I approached each like I approach everything. Can I do something that I think is worth the cover price with right. this? Right. That that sort of feeling, the kind of where you sit in pop culture kind of feeling, mm-hmm. that didn't really hit me until people started reading it and I would get social media messages about it. Right. You know, and you realize how far because remember, like before that. Now, I've been kind of working in comics for a few years, mm-hmm. but it was like, you know, Postal. Right. I had, a, I had my own image book, like, you know, kind of niche stuff. Yeah. Um, I hadn't worked on something that just gets so many eyeballs and so much interest, you know, um, where people are just paying a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And when those, you know, when each of those things came out, the, the Miles Morales annual, like, I, you know, I didn't know that. Bendis had been the only person that had really written Miles before I showed up. You know, yeah. I, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't think about that. You know, and and um, somewhat Christopher Priest actually, you know, on a panel made mention um, that not many, you know, African American writers have written Batman, right. and I didn't think about that either. You know, I was just kind of doing my thing. And um, when you see like the the reactions that people are having from it, then you realize like, oh wow, okay. You know, these things mean a lot to people. And so more than thinking about what it meant for me, it just made me feel more responsible to deliver the best experience I could for readers. Because I remember what it's like to walk into a comic book store, you know, buy a book about your favorite character and you want to have a good experience. Mm -hmm. And I've I've been that guy. I was that guy growing up. Um, And uh, even though I'm just a very small part of, of, you know, Spider-Man and Batman uh, as a legacy, you know, you do have a little pond, you know, a little, a little lily pad, right. you know, there, and you, you want to do a good job with it. Um, so, so yeah, that was more of, of, you know, what I was thinking about. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, well, Brian, you write TV, you write screenplays, like, you know, why, mm-hmm. why write comics? And it's really because the readers, right? Because, you know, you, there's no other form where, well, one, you know, everything you write is going to actually come out, which is nice. Yeah. Um, and it's going to come out relatively soon after you wrote it, which is nice. True. Uh, it's it's also kind of terrifying because people can watch you evolve as a creator in real time. Mm. You know, they, they're kind of seeing you, you know, stumble and fall and get up again and the whole thing. 
Um, but that relationship you have with the comic reader is just a unique one in popular culture. Yeah. And you can't go to a convention and meet a screenwriter, really. You know, you can't meet a director, you know, at a signing. Like, those things don't happen. Mm. You know, uh, the, the, the creators and the consumers of the, of the art, they're separate in Hollywood. Um, I think intentionally so, because Hollywood can be a pretentious place about those things. Mm. But comics is, um, is you know, re- like removed from a lot of those pretensions. So you can just be a guy who reads Tom King comics and go to a convention and chat with Tom King. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to have readers that want to communicate with you and, and, you know, take the time out of their day to go to a store, buy your book with their hard-earned money, take it home, read it, and then send you a tweet about it. You know, I, I you know, eternally grateful uh, for that. Dude, so that was more of what I was thinking. Do, um, do you find yourself... I mean, obviously, you, everybody tries not to feed internet trolls at this point. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, it happens occasionally, I guess. Sure. sure. But do do you find that part of of this experience to be you know equally as just as rewarding as it is, where you know someone reads American Carnage and they're like, "Wow, this is great," and sends say, you know tweets to you saying, "This is amazing." On the flip side, is it like just? you know, just grating on you when someone is like, this book is trash, everything is trash, you're horrible. And, uh, you know, then for some reason it goes into like personal attacks instead of just saying, oh, you know, I read this book, I wasn't a big fan. But not, not really, because I'll tell you what, man, you know, I grew up uh, in St. Louis, okay. which is like the Tatooine of America, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like it, it, St. Louis is a place where football teams leave and immediately go to the Super Bowl. Right. Like that's, right. that's the city. Right. And you know, when you, when to be in a situation where someone who I've never met mm. is so irritated with me because there's a burning cross in the cover of a comic book I wrote, right. That they have to tweet me about it. You just kind of marvel at the strangeness of that more than anything else. Like that, that you have enough significance in that person's life where they feel like they need to denigrate you on social media. Yeah. So it doesn't really bother me. Um, and I don't get that much of it, frankly. I, I, you know, the, there's a, a school of philosophy, uh, hermetics, and there's like seven principles of hermetics. And I, I subscribe to those principles. And one of them is the law of returning. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that the energy that you put out comes back to you. So when someone is deliberately argumentative or mean or petty on social media and aiming that at me, I usually just ignore it and it goes away. Um, if there's a question inside of all of that rudeness, I'll just engage the question honestly. And 90% of the time they stop being rude and then we have a conversation. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe it's just growing up in the hip hop nineties mm. of it all, but yeah, I don't internalize you know, that kind of thing. Um, I'd like people to be nicer online in general because of the, <laughs> the world would be better. Absolutely. You know, like, um, and I, I assure people that I'm never writing a book to personally injure you. <laughs> 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 Especially if I don't know who you are. Yeah. Um, now, can we know. be sure? Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> certain, right? Pretty certain, you know. Um, you know, like American Carnage, like unless you're actually a white supremacist, you should be fine with that book. Right. And frankly, even if you are, you're not going to find a book that writes you, you know, with more empathy than me. Yeah, I, that's 
like I said before, you you give even those characters, you still give like a sympathetic light and, you know, they're people, you know, you get where they're coming from instead of, you know, they're just pure evil, you know, over the top. Yeah. So, but, but to be honest, I don't, I don't get a lot of it. You know, I mean, Mm. my Twitter feed um, cause most of the talking I do to people I do on Twitter, I'm not super active on Facebook or Instagram. I don't understand Instagram at all. I don't yeah. care what you have for lunch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, like I, my Twitter feed, it's, I, I got conservatives there. I got liberals. I got socialists. I got anarchists. I got atheists. I got occultists. You know, I have, uh, born again, Christians, kind of everybody. And, and most of the vast majority of the conversations I have are positive mm. and, and people know that you know I'm, I'm a left of center guy, um, pretty left of center, you know, and right. uh, uh, I don't hide my my personal philosophy from people. But I also I'm not in the business of telling people how to live, hmm. you know. I'm not in the business of telling people how to think. Like I can tell you how I think, and I'm happy to tell you how I arrived at the conclusion I arrived upon. But I don't I don't think it's my responsibility to force anyone into a point of view. And, uh, and I certainly don't get paid to argue with people on social media. Mm. So, uh, there, you know, when it comes to that stuff, yeah, I mean, there's a limited amount of energy I'm going to put into something that's not making me money. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Frankly, like getting involved in like a Twitter storm with something. No, no. And, And I think because people can sense that about me, the people that, that just love doing that and living that way, they know I'm not very fun to play with. Right. It's not fun to punch a guy that just ducks and walks away. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, <laughs> you're, you know, like you're going to stop after a while, right? Like you're going to, you know, you, you want to you get someone that's going to dance with you and I don't dance. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just want to thank you again for coming well, on. Thank you, for, man. This has been talking. great. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah. you for sharing your platform. I appreciate I mean, it. You know, uh, unfortunately, Ronnie couldn't be here, but the two of us so far three issues in and American Carnage is right at the top of our to read pile whenever it's well, out. I'll tell you, when, you know, like, you know, maybe later on this year when Ronnie's back, uh, I can come back on and oh. you know, all, all three of us can hop on and have the conversation. Oh, absolutely. That would be fantastic. Uh, is there anything besides that that you want to plug or, or get out there for people? Well, I mean, I'll let readers know that Postal Season 2 is on the way. Look out for that. American Carnage is uh, ongoing, and so um, you can still jump on that train. I think we've only got three issues out so far, so you haven't missed very much. Um, Killmonger, uh, the miniseries writing from Marvel, mm-hmm. is still uh, it's coming. I think we got two more issues of that um, that are going out there, and that's a pretty exciting thing. Don't miss that. And just finally, you know, for the cheap seats... Batman and the Outsiders is definitely happening, and I am definitely writing it, and (laughs) you will definitely be able to read it this year. Uh, For more updates on that and other things, you can follow me on Twitter, at Brian Edward Hill. That's Brian with a Y. Uh, I keep my DMs open. Uh, If people have writing questions and the like, I try to answer them. Um, And, you know, besides that, just, uh, you know, be nice to each other and keep working and keep living and you know we're we're all going to get there together hopefully um thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode uh if you want to get in touch with me on twitter you can at aaron s bell ronnie who was not here is at ronbar 316 and the show is a dc underscore absolute thank you again